Hi, and welcome to What is Black, a parenting podcast where we discuss issues important to raising healthy and thriving Black children and teens. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Duget. Thank you for joining us for this very special bonus episode of the show. And we have some brilliant special guests today. Um, We have a special guest panel. They're joining me to discuss addressing gun violence prevention. And before we get started, I want to introduce our guests. Um, We're joined by Dr. Sonia Khan. Dr. Khan is a board-certified pediatrician who's currently a medical director in the Youth and Family Division of the City of Fremont Human Services Department in California. Her background um, includes being um, in the pediatric ICU, which is the intensive care unit, um, adolescent medicine, and over two decades working on policy and legislative efforts on a variety of public health and safety issues that affect kids in America including comprehensive body work and gun violence prevention um, at the state, local, and federal levels, and in trauma and equity-informed best practices for kids' mental health in schools. And she currently sits in her ter- her second term as Human Relations Commissioner for the City of Fremont. And our other illustrious guest is Abiba Salahu, who is a f- rising fourth-year medical student at Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine in Rochester Hills, Michigan, and and is a recent inductee into the National Gold Gold Humanism Honor Society. Outside of medicine, she's extremely passionate about community organizing, anti-racism, and restorative social justice work. She also serves as a mentor for marginalized students, and her goal is to serve diverse communities as a child and adolescent psychiatrist. So I'd like to welcome our special guest. Welcome this evening. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. So, yeah, I, I'm just honored that you all are joining me today to talk about um, such an important topic. And, you know, again, one of the reasons um, that we're doing this topic is because of the recent incidents um, in the news, just just a couple of the recent incidents, right? Because since this recording, at the time of this recording, there have been other um, reports of uh, mass mass shootings, um, which is which is horrific to say. Um, but I really wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, two of the most um, relevant, more recent relevant topics, the um, recent events in Buffalo, and Buffalo, New York, and Uvalde, Texas. And I wanted to get your um, reflections on those events pertaining to, um, one, how you're feeling, your, your field, of, field of work, and also um, the topic that we're covering today. So I'll start with um, Dr. Khan first. Oh, sure. Thanks, um, Dr. Duget, for this uh, invitation to speak here. I'm, I, I feel quite honored, actually, uh, being asked um, after everything that we've been going through in this country right now. The timing of what we're going through is just, um, it's, it's a very vulnerable time for us. We've just come through two years of pandemic that disrupted our lives in so many different ways. Um, and as you said, it's, it's not as if uh, this shooting you know, happened, either of these shootings in Uvalde or Buffalo happened in the context of no shootings. They've been happening uh, at an increasing rate for some time now. But these two, I think, really hit people hard. Um, and and I think feelings are very raw about it. There's all kinds of the, um, the racial implications of the shooting that took place in Buffalo. The fact that it was a very specifically owned um, manifesto that was being used to target uh, this community, it, it sounds like it's one of the clearest examples of a hate crime of all the 
past shootings we've had where we've questioned whether there were racial motivations. This one, it feels like there's really no question at all because this shooter actually went out of his way to make his feelings known in advance. And, and so it feels like there's little doubt. And that leaves room, I think, for rage that's been suppressed for a long time. Uh, because we've known that there's there's a behavior in a group of people that are feeling this way out there. And, and the country's been uneasy about that for a long time. So I think that's got a lot of people shook. Um, for different reasons altogether, the Uvalde, Texas shooting has rocked, um, rocked this country. Um, and I think that people have forgotten that it's been 10, almost 10 full years since a shooting took place in an elementary school. And although we thought maybe we were had gotten used to a new normal, there's nothing normal about a shooting in an elementary school, even if you were getting used to the idea of shootings taking place in all kinds of things that we were calling soft targets. Um, and so so we're rocked all over again. We are reliving. I think we're having flashbacks to the trauma that we did feel at the time of Sandy Hook. The, we're feeling the full import of 10 years of cynicism in seeing that nothing really effective was done after Sandy Hook to prevent something like Sandy Hook happening again. We all were waiting for the second shoe to drop and it did. So I, I, I feel like the country is reeling in that way. Um, I think the aftermath of the secondary trauma that's been inflicted here unnecessarily after 10 years of learning um, how to deal with trauma and how to deal with school shootings. Um, this whole question of the law enforcement response at, at, at Uvalde has really sort of unnecessarily accentuated the trauma that people are feeling. Um, and, and I think it actually categorizes um, I, I would categorize it as sufficiently vicarious to actually trigger PTSD in the population from people who are living very remote to Texas. Um, those are my initial thoughts. And uh, Biba. Thank you so much, Dr. Duche, for inviting me um, tonight. And thank you so much, um, Dr. Khan, as well. Um, I'm really grateful to be able to uh, take part in this conversation with both of you guys. And also um, just share a little bit about my perspective as a fourth year medical student. So although I'm not directly um, treating patients, I'm definitely seeing the um, just the overall effects of the shooting and how it's been impacting communities. I think um, first and foremost, it's just really important for all of us to really lean on our support systems during this time and really process the grief that we're feeling and the anger that we're feeling in um, productive ways, similar to the conversation that we're having right now. <clears throat> I know um, as a student, a lot of students across the country, you know, were really just frustrated with the lack of response and lack of um, media coverage following the shooting in Buffalo. I think oftentimes, especially as um, underrepresented students in medicine, we really find ourselves very isolated and kind of wanting um, our peers and our administrators and the majority to speak up when these things happen. So when you know, we're met with silence and response. It can feel very isolating and, you know, just very hurtful to um, think that the rest of the country isn't feeling the same rage that we're feeling because, you know, every life is important, even just one person um, being like murdered in any kind of like senseless act is extremely important. So then to have an act, um, as Dr. Khan said, targeted specifically against African Americans and have such a delay in media coverage was just very shocking for a lot of people to see. And I think especially after um, 
the sort of racial awakening that we witnessed in 2020 with the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, a lot of people um, were encouraged by the motivation and the energy that they saw in the community and the protest. And so to have another racially motivated event happen again, and then to not see that same outrage from the entire country um, makes us wonder if 2020 and a lot of the responses and the anti-racism work um, organized by institutions were performative or not, um, since that same energy isn't really seen now. Um, so I think it's really important that we have these conversations. And I think that people were also, you know, reflecting on the coverage um, between Buffalo and the events in Ukraine and just seeing how how much coverage there was about what was happening in Ukraine and then, you know, not seeing as much um, with the events in Buffalo. And then moving on to um, the recent um, shooting that we saw in Texas, I think it's for that as well, um, it's really important to just recognize um, the mental health of the children and how they're processing and feeling about this. Because I know parents are really worried, community members are really worried, but then also thinking about what it must be like for a six-year-old, a five-year-old, a 10-year-old to see these things on the news and see these horrible things happening at their school and that effect that it has on their long-term learning. Um, just within my pediatric clerkship um, that I had in November following the shooting that happened in Michigan at Oxford High School, we saw a lot of teens coming into um, the hospital with complaints of abdominal pain, headaches, all sorts of somatic symptoms that I really think were a manifestation of the trauma that they experienced going through the Oxford shooting at their high school. Um, so just witnessing that in November and seeing the effect that it had on the high school students in Michigan, I can only imagine um, what effect it's having on smaller kids um, in Texas. And especially being so young, they don't necessarily have the words to verbalize exactly how they're feeling. Um, so it's really important that we really, um, you know, take the time to actually talk to the kids and help them grieve through that trauma that they're experiencing. Because I know um, there's a lot of talk about, you know, how how much anxiety parents are feeling. And I think that's definitely valid um, and super important to talk about. But we also have to also really work on the mental health of the children as well and make sure that they're getting the support that they need. So I'm really excited to join this conversation. Thank you both so much. Awesome. So thank you so much. I mean, I, I love the reflections and I, I you know, I, I think I feel similar um, to you both. You know, I think the one thing that resonates with me um, is the trauma that's either like Dr. Khan mentioned, vicarious trauma, right, or experienced by those who are directly impacted by the um, by the gun violence, right? Those events, and then when we talk about just gun violence in general, right? So I pulled up some some data, and I think what's interesting, right? So um, the Pew research, re some data from the pre. Pew Research Center, uh, they compiled data from the CDC, um, the Federal Bureau of Investigations. And so they said some of the data that really sh kind of shocked me was that in 2020, the most, most recent year that they had complete data, over um, 45,000 people died from gun-related injuries in the United States. Um, and that the majority of those um, gun-related deaths were um, either by suicide, 
or murders, right? And then the rest were, you know, unintentional law enforcement involvement or undetermined. And overall, like this number of this over 40, 45,000 um, total gun deaths in 2020 was, you know, probably the most on record just in terms of number. Um, and that, I guess the other statistics, right? Guns are now the leading cause of death among young people and the disproportionate impact on um, communities of color. Um, so again, you know, Abiba, when you talked about um, the lack of full coverage of what's happening in Buffalo, um, I think sort of is interesting, right? Just because of one, again, this concern about um, why it's not getting full coverage. So just for, so again, I just wanted to like just highlight some of that data, but also knowing that there, if we look at the data, especially for young people, you know, both Dr. Khan and I are pediatricians, um, and that's really our realm. Even though we also work with families in our communities, that I mean, that's the data that this disproportionate impact on communities of color is really interesting, and and talking about that, the impact, you know, one has to think about how how policies and gun laws right are created to also maybe create some like root causes for this disproportionality and so i just wanted to talk a little bit more about that in terms of i know dr khan you're very much involved in policy and some of your thoughts about how policy impacts how um one coverages you know again that coverage of events but also the impact that gun violence has on, on communities of color. Sure, yeah, thanks for that question. Um, it's really a, it's a multi-layered problem going on there. Um, I feel like, first of all, some of the data, the data that you're talking about is to some extent, we have to always acknowledge that it is incomplete because mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, research at the federal level was made illegal. And part of our advocacy efforts at the federal level actually have been to try and get $50 million liberated for the CDC to do comprehensive research on um, data that involves the whole country. Because right now we have a variegated problem where there are some states that are not obligated to report all data. And some states are somewhat negligent in reporting data that they should be reporting, including within the background check system. Um, and there are some data where it has been made illegal to collect uh, data on police officer shootings, like certain types of demographic data that you would like to get into the larger data on gun violence. And there's a kind of a firewall that's been separated from the data on police uh, or officer-involved shootings and, and the larger sort of picture of gun violence data that we're looking at and actually getting people's death certificates to indicate that they they um, they were a death violence, a gun violence data and not uh, categorized as something else like a killed in the line of uh, a crime or something like that. Um, so that's that's one element of it. Um, and it's it's a it's a very subtle sort of just fudging of uh, ability to use research, and that actually has a critical bearing on how the media can address these issues. Because one of the areas of frustration is that it appears as if even the most uh, beneficent media tends to both sides this issue, and part of the reason they can't really bring the hammer down on the idea that you can't both sides an issue when you have sufficient data is the absence 
of that data coming into the fore. Now, there's there's a lot of ways in which people have over the years tried to bypass that at the state level. There are states that have tried to make up for that. California is one of them. We've tried to collect a lot of data, but we also have a few heroes out there. Um, there's a, a physician colleague of ours uh, at UC Davis by the name of Dr. Garen Wintermute, who holds uh, an adult, he's an emergency room doctor who holds a, a, a violence prevention chair there. And he spent something close to a million dollars over about 30 years of his own money going undercover into gun shows and demonstrating the proof of the gun show loophole in action. Because um, there's a lot of confusion out there about the background check system. And there's a lot of, well, we have the laws we need and we have a universal Brady. The Brady bill gave us a big background check system. So what are you talking about? You just need to use the bill. Um, and, and they fail to understand that private interactions, private transactions were exempted from that bill. And that includes all the, the gazillions of guns that get sold at, at gun shows by private sellers who, who get a permit to set up a kiosk. And in California, we had a huge issue with a, a, a an area of unincorporated county property that held the cow palace the big giant auditorium where they were holding a gun show every year and um a lot of the kids this is i'm in the san francisco bay area and a lot of the kids that are in communities in san francisco that are plagued by handgun violence could come down to this gun show once a year and 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 certain uh elements would buy large amounts of guns in these gun shows and then come out to the parking lot and sell them out of the trunks of their cars to all comers um, it's like the worst example of straw purchasing, right? Those are people that would pass a, a background check themselves, maybe, but they don't even need to when they go into the gun show, buy guns, large amounts, even unrestricted fashion, and then they're coming out and basically selling them like off the back of a, an ice cream truck. Um, that's a huge issue. And they, and, and because we couldn't shut down that loophole over the, the, the sacred ability to, for a father to hand his gun to his son or those kind of personal uh, transactions of guns between um, family members and private friends, in order to protect that, we've got this loophole that is allowing our other communities to get absolutely plagued by the inability to get rid of guns on their streets. Um, so that's an example of sort of disproportionate policy that's just not equitable. Um, there's a lot of things like that as well. Um, if you look at the vast structure of the the uh, American judicial system, you could see that there are niche actors built into our system that have the ability to let selectively allow certain people to evade law enforcement and judicial consequences for their actions and other people not to evade. And it's one of the hardest things to identify about inequity. It's not that there's an evil law out there that says you should, you know, this law shall be applied to this community or that community. It's the absence of protection from individual actors, right, that allow bias to creep into our judicial system and allow for selective enforcement or selective implementation of policies and laws. So in that way, it's a, it's a, it's a big mess. Yeah. Yeah. And Biba, I don't know if you had any comments about the disproportionate impact of, of communities of color regarding gun violence. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's a really important uh, topic to discuss and consider. And one um, interesting thing that um, Dr. Khan said that really speaks to that is, um, you know, how certain people are able to evade some of the screenings related to um, gun violence prevention and screening. And I think um, a lot of a big part of that is also, you know, racism against communities of color. Um, lots of communities of color are overly policed. Um, 
and watched, yet a lot of these violent um, events are still happening there. So it just makes us wonder, you know, what the policing is actually doing in those communities and whether it's actually to protect the communities or just to um, perpetuate racism within the communities. Um, so I think that's one important thing that we have to consider um, regarding the disproportionate um, prevalence of gun violence within communities of color. And then another thing that we have to consider, um, I think, is mental health within this entire conversation, because I think uh, mental health is often used as a scapegoat for um, gun violence uh, policies. And um, just, you know, just after the uh, Uvalde shooting, um, Governor um, Greg Abbott said that, you know, it was an unfortunate um, mental health issue. And also within um, communities of color, we do see that there's a lot of mental health issues that aren't really talked about because it's heavily stigmatized. So I think once we um, fully address, you know, mental health issues within communities of color and kind of work on destigmatizing those issues, we can kind of separate mental illness from gun violence instead of, you know, intertwining them in this messy way that just um, creates room for excuses as well as um, perpetuates negative um, stereotypes about people with mental illness and that they're all dangerous and that they're the ones that are um, perpetrating um, these crimes, which we know isn't um, true at all. So I think that those are some things that are important to consider. I just wanted to um, point out that right now we're having a rash of 18 and 19 year olds that are coming out and doing this. And I would like to point out that those 18, 19 year olds were about five or six years old at the time of Sandy Hook, right? Five, six, seven year olds. They were elementary students at the time of Sandy Hook. And the fact that they are coming up and seeking, these are the types of solutions that they're resorting to. I don't think it's a coincidence in their, in their knowledge. I think that we have to acknowledge that every time we talk about mental health, as you said, um, we're really, um, we're really kind of creating a false firewall and we're, we're, we're trying to depute or depute the blame of this problem to mental health. But what we really should be talking is traumatized people because what we do know is that hurt people do tend to hurt people in many different uh, facets of human behavior and, and that we should acknowledge that the mental health crisis that's being held up as the solution to attending a gun violence problem is actually partly in the state that it's in because of our gun violence problem. And that the, that that part of when we do talk about mental health in schools and, and our kids is that we are trying to prevent the next student that grows up to come back and shoot up his own school or some other school that we're trying to we're trying to uh, walk and chew gum at the same time here and that these things are not in opposition to each other, right? Because I, I do get a little bit cynical when I hear people saying, well, what about the mental health of, of these shooters when these are the same people that fight as hard as they can to defund mental health services in the states from which they're arguing about in the first place. So it's just a very convenient argument for them to essentially distract and create a false dichotomy in the argument. Um, that stuff does that's on the media the media really does have the chops to be able to um to put these bang these rocks together and um and figure out these kind of things and say it and they're not doing it um they're devolving to the both sides opinion get everybody's opinion on it um and we we are stuck unfortunately at the political level with the fact that yeah half the country is pulling one way and half the country is pulling the other um I mean, there's a whole there's a whole nother conversation to be had about communication and the weaponization of words and the reason why they're so ineffective right now 
um, as opposed to not that long ago. Um, but that's a different. I think that's to me, that's like sort of, you know, having some different voices in this conversation, right? Healthcare providers, pediatricians, um, I think provide a different perspective. And I think also, you know, the public health perspective, because I, because what resonates from, from me as well is this idea of when you kind of talk, we're going to, we're going to segue into the role of pediatricians and why it's so important, right? Because as you were both were talking, you know, there's like a straw man, so to speak, right? Let's, let's say, let's say it's mental health. But if you think about it, like if you go backwards a little bit, right? Okay. Before we even get here when we get here, what's not funded, right? You know, in terms of even communities of color or, or rural communities under, under resourced communities, um, are there, you know, what happened to, you know, most of the funding, right, is going into police and law enforcement, right? And law enforcement does everything. But what about social workers? What about more school nurses? What about more um, places to, safe places to play, right? Um, fair, you know, it, a, a livable wage, right? All these things I think are really important as well. And that things we advocate for. But the other thing I found very interesting too is some of the some of the legislators, right, are coming out with things that, about like, oh, let's let's arm more teachers, let's arm, let's put more arm um, guards in the school, let's put up um, a fortress around the school. And if you think about it, many communities where there's already a disproportionate violence, right? A, you know, a kid can say, "Oh, I know. You know, I hear, sh I hear shooting at, at home, right outside my outside my house, or you know, I'm not a there's not a safe neighborhood to play, right? So you now are going to militarize schools, you know, and I'm I'm over exaggerating this idea of militarization, right? But the idea again, what it, like you talk about trauma, you talk about again this idea of institutionalizing and criminalizing and victimizing kids when that's that's not really the answer. So again, so so segueing, saying all that to segue into, I think the role that we play, right? Pediatricians, healthcare providers can play to really redress these issues, advocate for these issues and advocate for our families. So it's open to anybody. Sure, I mean, I'll, I'll take a stab at that one. Um... I think at the at the fundamental provider level, of course, we've done a great job at owning the consequences of the ACEs data and trauma in the life of the child. And even though that first CDC Kaiser study didn't include racism in it as an uh, adverse childhood experience, we all see the independent data on ACEs on on racism and understand that the consequences are the same and that it, it's probably another one in a longer list of traumas that we can include. So at the individual level, I think that the, the world of pediatrics is doing great, coming up with policy and, and recommendations, parenting skills, recommendations for schools and teachers. We have a wealth of resources on the website and the Healthy Child org website for uh, the individual ability to counsel to our patients and their parents. And I think that the role that the pediatrician plays has been somewhat underestimated in the public spaces, to be honest. 
because people do tend to separate medicine from mental health. And they think that pediatricians are only there for medical health and that, that, that mental health is to be handled by other types of professionals. And I like to remind them that a lot of the other mental health professions were intended to respond to pathology, but that normal mental health advisement and recommendations is actually the jurisdiction of pediatricians because 90% of our job is adult parenting psychology, teaching parents how to parent. We're not there to parent your kids for you, right? But we are there to provide guidance to parents in best practices and what works and what doesn't work according to the research that we have. And so in in the context of gun violence and, and in the incredibly multifactorial, unstable society that we are all feeling in right now, and including parental anxiety, which is a number one driver for child anxiety, is the anxiety in their own parents about the life that they live in, um, the public sphere could recognize perhaps the role that pediatricians have there more. And perhaps more parents would be bringing these problems to pediatricians than to their schools asking for mental health resources in one of the most underfunded spaces that we're dealing with right now. At a higher level in terms of advocacy, stepping out from your practice and going out, um, I, I think at this in this area, I've, I've been advising people to keep it local because you're, you're, this is something that is so different, not just from state to state or county to county, but school district to school district. But um, I, I'm advising parents and pediatricians, get involved with your school district, even if only to, like now they're all, on, a lot of them are on Zoom. A lot of the meetings are recorded. You don't actually have to get dressed and go to the, the board meeting and stuff, but start listening in because local politics tends to get away with a lot of stuff because they don't think they're under high levels of scrutiny, external, larger state level scrutiny. And then a lot of skullduggery happens at that level. So um, for, for pediatricians, I feel like the school environment has been, uh, it's got a lot of impact from mental, from mental health professionals, not so much impact from pediatricians. Varies from state to state. Some have on-site school uh, clinics where pediatricians have a physical presence in the schools, but there are many states and counties that don't do that. California, East Coast is, is actually better for that than the West Coast. The West side of the country tends not to, it's a, it's a big struggle to get school-based medical services to students and stuff. Um, so there's an area that could um, do with a lot of uh, advocacy from pediatricians. Um, and not just at the school clinic level, because there are school physicians who go to a school school every single day to uh, provide services for the students, but if they don't go to the board meetings and they don't understand that budget and they don't know wh what is what gets funded where, and they don't play a role in the curriculum and the and the and the development of the framework of curriculums, a lot can go past them, and they won't and they won't realize it. And I think that in, in, that information is actually critical to us as an American Academy of Pediatrics as well, because we have a council on school health inside the academy, and we're trying to make the most of a profession that's not ours, trying to get as much information as we can about the school systems, how they're governed through their states and counties, and what we can do to interact with them. There's a, there's a lot of trouble uh, troubled misunderstandings between school districts and uh, local pediatricians in in areas because of the you know the the health interaction of kids coming onto school with infectious diseases what they can and cannot do so that's an area where I think that pediatricians could actually play a big role in um, helping to integrate the relationship between parents schools children and pediatricians. And I think that there's a quadrangle there that that often suffers. The pediatricians often uh, are misunderstood as people that are there to write for your vitamins and your vaccine. Um, so I think that's 
that's a, that's one thing. I, mean, I think you know what you're alluding to is, and I think both of you have right, is that this is really a complex issue, right? And to say that we want to prevent gun violence, I mean, I think, I mean, yes, laws are important, right? You know, um, to to prevent, right? But then there are other, there are really other factors, right, in terms of what um, what leads up to how and when these incidents occur, right? And there's a role to play, especially, um, I think, you know, you know, when we talk about Uvalde, you know, this impacting kids mostly, but when you think about Buffalo as well, many of the, many of those who, who were murdered in Buffalo are grandparents, right? Or aunts, uncles have, have, have grandchildren. So there's still an impact, right? An intergenerational impact for all of these incidents. And so, again, I think a role potentially, you know, in all those aspects for pediatricians to play, healthcare providers to play. Um, yeah, I mean, again, this this conversation wasn't meant to like, let's solve the issue. I think it was really just to think about different perspectives about how we think about prevention of gun violence. Um, that there, there are some issues of implicit bias um, involved in, policies that are made, decisions that are made, reactions to, whether, like through media for, and the lens that we look at these incidents, right? And not having a fuller, there's really a, really a, not a, a global view of these, of these topics. So before, before we headed out, before we, before we end the conversation, I was wondering if you all have any recommendations from your experience about how families can make a difference like what can be what can what what can they do because like you talked about to Khan about ideally maybe encouraging parents to act locally are there any other additional recommendations or thoughts about um, how families can help yeah for sure I think that attending to the um, we've been talking in many different contexts over the last two years about the mental health crisis that kids are going through. And these shootings have definitely added in a huge way to the sense of anxiety and distress that kids feel. And, and, and I just want to, you know, it, it started in that whole argument about whether or not we should shut down schools and uh, during COVID and, and were we doing more harm than good to the, the mental health of the students by shutting down schools. And what I found was that there was a canard of discussion going on where people suddenly had really simple answers for why their kids were going through mental health crisis. It's this, it's that, they're in school, they're out of school, they're, it's, it's, you know, it's the gun violence in their schools, it's the SROs, the police officers on their schools, it's, it's this, it's that. And I think that we fail to understand how there's an interplay between all of those elements in our kids, but that the number one thing, in my opinion, as an adult, as a mother and as a pediatrician, is that our kids are having a mental health crisis because one way or another, they are figuring out much too early in life that the adults actually don't have a clue what they're doing. And, and there's nothing that makes kids more scared. And so I think that if I was to give any parent a, a single piece of solid advice, it is sit down with your kid, admit what you don't know. When you admit what you don't know, 
you can talk more confidently about what you do know, and you may be able to re-inspire a sense of at least immediate trust in your parents that you can start, because those kids are going to have to start from scratch trying to develop trust in things that we grew up trusting, like institutions, um, for making evidence-based recommendations and all kinds of things. And we've seen adults acting at the most irresponsible level in many different facets, uh, it, it, including the decisions that were made over COVID, and decisions over our economy, and decisions over our government and our elections and all kinds of things that um, I think that you'll not you'll not get anywhere dealing with specific issues with these kids until you can re-engage them in the idea that maybe there are still some adults out there that can be trusted and that uh, you're you as the adult in their life are going to help them find those people together. Awesome. Anna Biba, any thoughts? Yeah, um, I agree with um, what Dr. Khan said. I think the idea of reinstilling trust within the kids is extremely important. Um, and I thought it was really interesting that Dr. Khan mentioned, you know, trust in institutions. I think that um, has been extremely damaged now, especially with all the racist events that we're seeing in the country. It's been extremely hard to trust these organized systems that continue to fail communities of color and marginalized um, communities. So I definitely think it's important. Um, let parents talk to their kids about that. And I think just in general, you know, it sounds really basic, but just creating space for conversation with their children and not shying away from the topics of mental health are important to talk about um, in the home. I think it can be a very um, taboo topic for a lot of people to talk about, especially, you know, coming from an immigrant background. I know um, in a lot of African communities, it's not really something that, you know, your, the parents sit down and talk to their children about, like, how are you feeling today? Like, are you feeling depressed? You know, those at least aren't really typical conversations within a lot of African communities. So I think it's really important to consider the cultural differences that exist between families when we're creating recommendations and, um, try to make them applicable to all different types of family backgrounds <clears throat> and really encourage pa um, parents um, through maybe sharing resources with them and like website links to how to have these conversations. Because even though it, it can be daunting for them at first, I think it's really important um, that we start talking to kids about this really young. I mean, just reflecting on my elementary and high school experience, we had giant metal, de um, metal detectors um, outside in front of our doors. Um, and we walked through those every single morning, got our book bags searched by um, police officers. And no one really spoke to us about what it felt like to go to school every morning in that criminalized and vilified um, fashion. Like I really didn't start having those conversations till now in my adult life. So I think having those conversations with kids early and unpacking those feelings is extremely important. There's much work to be done. Um, and I thank you for sharing um, sharing time with time with me this evening to have this conversation. Again, I know we're not going to solve it. We're not going to solve the problem. But I think the more we talk about it and really shed a different viewpoint on the topic, um, we, we lift up kids, we also lift up communities of color, and knowing that the policies that are made tend to not favor those communities because of his, historical precedents, um, marginalization, and we have to really rethink that, how, how, we, how we create our policies and, and thinking, thinking about people first. Um, so thank you so much. 
thank you so much for having this conversation. It's so important. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation and I am hopeful for the future and hopefully, you know, 10 years from now, we won't be having the same conversations, but we'll be looking back and excited about the progress that we have made. Thank you for joining us for this bonus episode of What is Black? This is episode one. Um, We'll have a part two that we'll share very soon. But again, I do want to thank our guests for sharing their experience and their opinions today about an important topic about preventing um, and addressing gun violence. Music and editing for this episode is by Manny Simone. We want to grow our community, so please tell a friend about the podcast, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at What is Black, that's W-H-A-T-I-S-B-L-K, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also check out our website at whatisblack.co to learn more about our work and to sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date about some of our exciting projects, including our upcoming documentary, Reading in Black, which celebrates Black children's literature. Also, listen to our new kids podcast, Henry's Library, And until next time, wishing you peace, wellness, and joy, and a reminder that you're seen and mattered.